Well, good morning, church family. It is good to see those of you that are here this morning. And uh, thank you, Michael, for sharing with us this morning from God's Word and about uh, the peace candle. What a, what a great word for us this morning when I think we, we need now more than ever a sense of peace. It's been a difficult week in our county. It's been a difficult week in our church. Um, this week we've had several hundred people uh, within our county who have tested positive for coronavirus, several members of our church in the last seven to ten days who have tested positive. Many of you know uh, about our brother Bobby Hanback who passed away this week from complications with uh, COVID. His funeral will be tomorrow here at Central Park um, and uh, we'll be celebrating his life. Uh, I met with Helen uh, a few days ago, I met with her Friday morning for a little while. She's doing very well, all things considered. Uh, but certainly, uh, Bobby took a very unexpected turn late uh, Wednesday night and Thursday. So let's continue to pray for her. Um, we also got word this morning that uh, Mr. Jerry Patterson uh, was taken by ambulance this morning to Decatur Morgan. I just got off the phone with Jody a few minutes ago. Uh, his uh, oxygen level was extremely low uh, and has been off and on the last couple of days. And so his doctor suggested that he go to the hospital. So let's remember him in prayer. Uh, Mr. Jerry, obviously, uh, despite, in addition to his age, also has asthma and some other health concerns that make this virus very, very dangerous for him. Uh, we've had several others who have uh, tested positive this week. We haven't been told of any other uh, severe complications. Our brother Steve Stovall came home from the hospital Thursday evening and uh, as, as well as I know is making progress. Um, but let's just remember all of these in our church family. Um, uh, it's, it's, we have been very fortunate to this point that uh, our church family has not been dramatically affected by the coronavirus, but it seems that right now it is affecting several in our church body. Um, and uh, so let's remember them and let's, uh, let's pray for them. And if you would, would you just join me in prayer this morning as we pray over our, our church family? Father in heaven, I, I just come to you right now and I do want to lean into the fact that you are the Prince of Peace. And, and in the midst of the storm, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of chaos, what we need right now, Father, is we need a sense of your peace. And I'm very grateful that we can experience your peace and we can do so even when our circumstances haven't changed. Father, I just pray right now that your peace would be upon Miss Helen Hamback and her family as they grieve this weekend and as they prepare for Bobby's funeral tomorrow. May you give them that peace that passes all understanding. We pray for our brother Steve and for others who are at home recovering from this virus. God, that you would give them a peace that passes all understanding. We pray for our brother Jerry right now. And Father, just pray that you would give the doctors wisdom and insight in how to treat him. And we pray, Father, that you would work in his body to give him oxygen and to, to help him to breathe and retain that oxygen. But Father, we pray that you would give him and Jody that peace that passes all understanding. Even in the midst of a very dangerous situation, Father, may they sense your peace. I sense that this morning, just talking to Jody, that she has complete trust in you, that, that uh, Jerry is in your hands. Thank you for that confidence that we can have. Father, I just pray that you would uh, help us as church members and church leaders 
to, uh, to just lean into you during this time. And Father, we thank you that we still have a place that we can gather to sing songs about our Savior, to celebrate his birth as a church family, and to, uh, to feast on your word this morning. So Holy Spirit, inspire us from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, last week we started our Christmas series, um, which we are calling Good News of Great Joy, a 2020 Christmas. Uh, I think that's an appropriate title because if, if there's any time in my life that we needed good news of great joy, it's right now. In the midst of a year filled with difficult, toxic, and unwelcome news, I think all of us are ready for some good news. And the beauty of Christmas for us as followers of Jesus Christ, is that Christmas is a yearly reminder, a yearly announcement of the good news of Emmanuel, God with us. And so no matter what's going on around us, coronavirus can cause us to be distant from our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're sitting there worshiping and I'm, I'm just experiencing grief in my heart because right now is supposed to be a choir full of people helping us to sing these songs and getting ready for a choir musical to celebrate our Lord and Savior that we're unable to have. And in the midst of all of that, while coronavirus can alter a lot of things in our life, it can't take away the announcement of Emmanuel. And for that, I'm very grateful. Now, today, we're going to be looking at a passage in Matthew chapter 1. So if you will turn there... We're going to be looking at Jesus' family tree. Now, as you're turning there, how many of you still have regular family reunions every year or every few years? Any of you still have family reunions? When I was growing up, we had the Doty family reunion in, in Columbus, where I, where I was born and raised. It was my grandmother's side of the family. And uh, that was every year in August, and it was a big, big, big deal. And uh, all of my grandmother's uh, brothers and sisters, including herself with the exception of two, have since passed and they're all aged now. So those family reunions stopped probably 15 years ago. Um, but we were able to have a family reunion this last year in 2019 when uh, my cousin who lives in South Carolina had a a gathering and had many of us of the cousins of the, the next generation uh, gathering together for the first time since my grandmother passed over 10 years ago. And it was, it was a great time. We talked about we need to do this more often. We, we like to spend time with our extended family. Have any of you ever traced your ancestry before? Any of you ever used maybe an online service like Ancestry.com or or, or just uh, maybe somebody in your family did that and you've been able to, to, to look into that. I remember several years ago that there was a book that was produced in our family about my mom's side of the family that was passed around. I haven't looked at it in many years, but it's interesting. Two years ago, I bought my mom and dad one of those Ancestry DNA kits and uh, had them at least take that and, and look and see kind of where some of our ancestors came from. We haven't we haven't, you know, subscribed to the service to really dig into it yet, but it's interesting to look back at, at where you came from and to look back at, at who was in your life. One of the most watched Christmas movies uh, 
And if you watched the Facebook Live this week, I shared with you uh, what I believe are the top ten Christmas movies. Uh, one of those on the list is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I certainly commend to you the edited television version of that, but it's the, the very humorous and complicated story of the Griswold family Christmas. And that movie is funny for many reasons. It has very many memorable scenes. Probably my favorite is the sudden appearance of Cousin Eddie on the front lawn. That's probably my favorite one, uh, where Clark says, you know, if I woke up tomorrow with my head sewn to the carpet, I wouldn't be any more surprised than I am right now. It's one of the greatest lines uh, in any movie. Uh, then the Christmas blessing by Aunt Bethany. No one can forget that one. And the frustrated lighting of the house that, that Clark endures. It's a funny movie, but it's funny for many reasons, one of which is that for some of us it hits very close to home. Christmas for Clark and for many of us is, uh, is about taking time away from the hectic pace of life to spend time with those beloved people whom God has given us as a family. And this theme of family is a central theme in many of our Christmas movies that we watch, such as George Bailey and his family, and It's a Wonderful Life, or Jack Campbell and, and, and looking back and seeing what might have been in The Family Man, or Kevin McAllister wishing that he didn't have a family and waking up to find himself home alone and, and regretting that, that his family is gone. One of the joys that most people appreciate more than just about anything else about Christmas is the gift of being able to spend time with family. For some, being with family is a refreshing experience, but for others, family gatherings at Christmas are difficult experiences. It may be difficult because of the pain of fighting traffic or waiting in airport terminals. It may be difficult because some members of our family are hard to deal with. We all kind of have Cousin Eddie's in our, in our family tree. Sometimes Christmas has a way of bringing unwelcome skeletons out of the closet. For some people, Christmas is difficult because this will be the first Christmas with an empty seat at their table. And the joys of the Christmas holiday will be mixed with the grief of death or, or even possibly divorce in the family. And even for others, Christmas this year will be difficult because family gatherings will be absent for the fear of contracting or transmitting an unwelcomed intruder that has disrupted our lives. Everyone loves family, and that's what Christmas is about. And everyone has funny and memorable stories about getting together at Christmas. It shouldn't surprise us that because family is so central to our experience at Christmas, it shouldn't surprise us that family is also central to the narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ. Both Matthew and Luke provide for us genealogies in their narratives of Jesus. And they frame for us the family line of the Lord Jesus. And so today I want us to look at a passage which is one of the most ignored and overlooked passages in all of the New Testament. It's not only the opening lines of Matthew's gospel, it's the opening lines of the entire New Testament which tells us of the life of Jesus Christ and the covenant of grace. It's found in verses 1 through 17 of Matthew chapter 1. And it's the genealogy of Jesus. Now, 
Let's be honest. If, if I were to hand you a list of my family genealogy, if I was to just say, these are the people in my family tree, and I handed you a list of names, that would mean absolutely nothing to you, right? If I said that my mom is, is Mary Alice Raspberry, who was once Mary Alice McGahee, and my father is Dennis Haynes, and my, my maternal grandfather is Thomas McGahee. My maternal grandmother is Alice Doty McGahee. Those names mean absolutely nothing to you. But if I share with you the stories of how those people impacted my life, that's what makes it interesting. And one of the reasons why we often don't know what to do with Matthew chapter 1 is because we don't often search deeper into the scriptures to find the stories behind the names. Genealogies and family trees are much more interesting when they are accompanied by the stories of where people came from or the great deeds that they accomplished. And until you go back in the pages of Scripture and uncover the stories behind the names, you don't really understand what Matthew is telling us here. Even before the angel's announcement to Joseph, even before the appearance of the star to the Magi, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, God paints us a picture of His never-failing, always merciful, faithfully sovereign grace that is leading His people to His soon-coming salvation. So I want us to read this genealogy, and, and when we do, let's be real honest that, that as we read through it, there's not going to be anything that's just going to jump off the page at you. But let's read it anyway. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abuid, and Abuid the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eluid, and Eluid the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Well, glory. Isn't that good? 
You were actually wanting to see how many of those names I was going to stumble through, weren't you? All right. Why is this important? The genealogy of Jesus is important because what we really want as followers of Jesus is we want a God who is both in control of the world that we live in as well as a God who deals with us in grace and not as our sins deserve. We want a God who is in control in the midst of a global pandemic virus that is killing hundreds of thousands of people. We want a God who is in control, amen? We want a God who is completely sovereign. We want to believe that this thing that's happening in our world and the chaos that we've been enduring in 2020 is not something that God has lost control. We want the comfort of God's sovereignty, but in the midst of the comfort of God's sovereignty and knowing that we have a God who is all-powerful and in control, we also want a God who deals with us graciously because we understand that this all-powerful God is a holy God to whom we have offended by our sin. And we want Him to deal with us in grace and mercy. We want a God who knows what is going on in the world and a God who is working in and through it by His great might. But we also want this all-powerful, all-knowing God who knows our hearts and our inner thoughts. We want that God to deal with us in grace and mercy. And that's what the Christmas story is about. It's about the sovereign grace of Almighty God invading our sin-soaked world and changing everything about us and the world in the process. So from this genealogy, I want to share with you what I would call three grace-fueled announcements that we see in the family tree of Jesus Christ. You have to look hard because you don't necessarily see these in the, jumping off in the text, but when you read the stories behind the names, what you see are these three announcements that the Spirit is telling us. Number one, God's grace is sovereign over all history, including your history. God's grace, the grace of God is sovereign over every second of human history, including your history. By providing us this ancestral background, Matthew and Luke help to frame the story of Jesus Christ within a very important and critical historical context. By providing for us this genealogy of people who were in the line of Jesus, it helps us to understand that the birth of Jesus Christ was a real event that took place in real time. God Almighty has entered our world and has done so in the body of a baby who will grow up and experience everything that you and I do. It's important for us to understand that the incarnation of Jesus Christ is not a fairy tale. It is a historical fact. When you read fairy tales to your children, fairy tales always start with what words? Once upon a time. And we share these stories of, of the Lord of the Rings and, 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 and the characters in the Lord of the Rings or Narnia or all of these stories that are fictional, fanciful stories that are, that are not true. But that's not the case with the birth of Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus Christ doesn't start off with the words once upon a time. It starts off with the record of the genealogy of Jesus. 
It starts off with a factual history of factual names. And this is important for us because, as Pastor Tim Keller once said, it reminds us that the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. The gospel is not an announcement. The gospel is an announcement, not a suggestion. Why does Matthew include this here? Why does Luke include a different genealogy? It's because family ancestries are vitally important in Jewish heritage. You could not serve as a priest unless you could trace your family line to the tribe of Levi. The promised land was divided amongst the 12 tribes for a reason, and a person's right to land was to be traced through their ancestry. Genealogies were critically important to first century Jews. And so to help establish that this announcement of this birth of this baby, who later on will go to do miracles and raise the dead and teach with authority and power and die on a cross and rise again, this incredibly powerful story starts with an incredibly factual list of names. We see this, the sovereignty of God in several areas. For instance, in verse 1, Matthew says that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. He takes care to frame the heritage of Jesus to, through two critically important historical figures. These figures stand as the promise of two critically important covenants to the Jewish people. God had told Abraham that Abraham would be the father of a great nation and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, that God would send one who would bless all nations. God had promised David through the prophet Samuel in 2 Samuel 7 that David's descendants would reign over Israel and that eventually God would establish his eternal kingdom through the line of David. And Jesus is the fulfillment of both of these covenants. He's the son of Abraham, showing that he's the promise to be the blessing to all nations. He's the son of David to show that he's the rightful king of Israel. We also see the sovereignty of God in the fact that Matthew and Luke have two different genealogies. Some people have gotten tripped up when they read Matthew's genealogy and then they read Luke's and they say, Pastor, there's, there's different names in these genealogies. Why is that? Some scholars have pointed out that that's a proof that, that the Bible is not reliable, but it's absolutely not the case. Matthew's names are different than Luke's because Matthew and Luke are going in different directions. Matthew starts with Abraham and traces down through the line of Joseph to show that, that Jesus was the rightful heir to the throne of David by the establishment of his earthly father even though Joseph wasn't physically Jesus' father. Luke traces Jesus' heritage backward through the line of Mary to show that Jesus was literally a blood descendant of David because he wasn't Joseph's blood child. And so we see the sovereignty of God in the fact that both Mary and Joseph came from the line of David, meaning that Jesus was the rightful heir. We also see this sovereignty of God through the fact that, that each of these in Matthew's genealogy are traced through what, what Matthew says, 14 generations. There's 14 names in three different couplets there. And 
It's important to understand that when you read Matthew's genealogy, he's not trying to provide an exhaustive ancestry from Jesus to Abraham. These are not all the people that were in that line. He's not trying to fill in all the, 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 the gaps. He's instead trying to show us the birth of Jesus through three critical biblical eras. One is the era of the patriarchs in Abraham. The other is the era of the royal line of David. And finally, the era of the exile in Babylon. What difference does this make to you and me? What can we possibly gain in our world from reading a boring list of names recorded in a book? Well, I think that one of the things that we can take away is that when we read this line and we read the stories of this book, there are two, two takeaways that we can see. Number one, there are really no such things as accidents, accidents or coincidences in your past and in my past. When we read these names and we see how each of these people were connected to one another, leading to the birth of the Savior, the Son of God, it reminds us that there are no accidents. There are no coincidences. You see, often we only see pieces of our lives and history, but we don't see how God has aligned all of those events to accomplish His sovereign purposes. You see, each of these relationships in Matthew's genealogy between sons and fathers were not just about people having children. Each of these relationships were the intentional hand of God to ensure that the birth of His Son would, be, would take place in such a way that God would accomplish His eternal plan through human agencies and human events. You see, when you look back on your ancestry, one of the things that you may see are a lot of strange coincidences. You ever heard any of those strange stories? Well, if such and such wouldn't have happened, your grandmother and your grandfather would have never met, and they would have never gone out the first time, you know. If, if so-and-so wouldn't have had a flat tire on the way to pick up your great-grandmother, your great-grandmother wouldn't have met your grand... You, and you look at you, oh, look at all those coincidences, right? But we must remember that none of those things in our life are accidental. For instance, in my own family... My father, Dennis Haynes, grew up in Whitmore Lake, Michigan, right outside of Ann Arbor. And after high school, after a series of events, he enlisted in the Air Force and went to Texas for basic training. Now, we have a son who serves in the Navy in Charleston, South Carolina right now. And if you've had a family member in the military, you know one of the, one of the things that happens in the military is that they get assigned and you don't always know when they're getting assigned until right before they do and you don't always know why. Well, after basic training, my father was assigned to go and work at the Air Force Base in Columbus, Mississippi. So why in the world would a guy from Michigan go to Mississippi other than the military told him to? And it was there that he would eventually meet my mother. And they would marry and they would have me and my brother. Is it just an accident? Is it just a coincidence that, that they decided to send my father to Columbus, Mississippi rather than Mobile, Alabama or Southern Florida? No. My maternal grandmother, Alice McGahee, was married to another man before she married my grandfather. 
And a series of events eventually separated them. He died in World War II, and soon after his death, my grandmother met a man named Thomas McGahee, who would become my grandfather, and they would have two children, including my mother. Now, none of these events were accidents or coincidences. They are an important part of the sovereign hand of God in my story. Because without my dad being shipped to Columbus, Mississippi, without my grandmother meeting my grandfather, I wouldn't be here to be your pastor right now. There are no such thing as accidents. And secondly, Jesus' genealogy reminds us that God himself is the ultimate author of all history. And if he's the author of all history, then he's the author of your history as well. The same sovereign God who perfectly aligned the birth of his son through thousands of years of ancestral heritage, that God is the same sovereign God who has brought you to this time, to this place, through thousands of years of your own heritage. It's not an accident that you live where you live in the time that you live. It's not an accident that you live in the neighborhood that you live in. God has aligned every event in history for you to be in this place at this time. Each of these people in the genealogy of Jesus were real people who lived real lives. Some of them were people who lived lives that had stories that inspired other people. We see in the line of Jesus, we see King David. We see Ruth and the beautiful story of Ruth. We see Jacob, one of the patriarchs. We think about Jacob and his journey. Now some of the other people in this line are obscure people who live normal, boring lives that other than being in this genealogy, we would have never heard of them. But each one of these people were a part of the story that God was writing to bring about the birth of His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, there are no accidents in your life. There are no meaningless events And we need to understand that God is the author of all human history and God will use you and God will use your story to accomplish His plan on this earth just like He did the people in Jesus' line. I'm grateful that God's grace is sovereign over all human history, including yours and mine. But, But the second lesson that we see here is that God's grace is powerful enough to overcome any failure, including your failure and my failure. As we said earlier, Christmas means sometimes you have to deal with difficult family members. Many of us laugh at the caricature of Cousin Eddie in the movie Christmas Vacation because we know that we have strange birds living in our nest as well, right? And we look back and we go, yeah, that's our Cousin Eddie. The truth is that everyone has knots in their family tree. And that one of the beautiful things that stands out when you study the genealogy of Jesus' family tree is that God doesn't cover up the flaws and the failures and the sins in the ancestry of the Son of God. A study of the people in Jesus' family tree gives us a who's who of dysfunction and disaster. When you go back and you look at what the Bible says about some of these people, you find incredible dysfunction. 
you find sin all over the place. For instance, Abraham. Who was Abraham? Well, he was the father of the Jewish nation, right? He was the the one to whom God covenanted and promised to make a great nation. But we also know that Abraham was prone to lying to protect himself. We also know from biblical history that Abraham, while he believed in God's promise, he didn't believe it enough to not get talked into a plan to somehow skirt the promise of God a little bit quicker when God didn't deliver as quickly as Sarah and he liked. When God didn't provide the promised heir and the timing that Abraham and Sarah wanted, Abraham let his wife talk him into doing it a different way by getting her handmaiden pregnant. And that mistake led to conflict in his home, and that mistake led to the seed of conflict that still exists between Jews and Palestinians today. Abraham was a liar who lied twice about his wife Sarah being his sister because he was afraid that if it was found out that she was his wife, that he would be killed. And in the process, he brought shame and disgrace to both her and to himself. And usually we don't tell the stories of liars. Then we see David, right? David was a man after God's own heart. He's a guy who wrote all the Psalms. He's a guy who, who, who slew Goliath, right? I mean, man, we can puff, puff out our chest and say, David. David was a part of the family of Jesus until we realize that David was also a passive leader, an adulterer, and a conspirer in the act of murder. He was passive in his leadership over the nation. He was in the palace when he should have been on the battlefield with his army, and that decision led to being in the wrong place at the wrong time, which eventually led to him becoming an adulterer who couldn't control his unbridled passion, took another man's wife for his own, and when she became pregnant, he tried to cover up the sin and eventually had her husband killed so that he could lie and take Bathsheba as his wife. His passivity also went into his family because he was unable to provide the leadership in his home, eventually resulting in both incest in his family and rebellion from his children who tried to have him killed. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, but in all of his wisdom he lived a life of unbridled passion, married hundreds of women, eventually sowing the seeds of spiritual idolatry by, wearing, by marrying pagan wives and planting the seeds of idolatry in Israel. In verse 3, he mentions Tamar. Do you remember the story of Tamar? Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Jacob's son, Judah. And the tale of Tamar is a sordid tale of incest and deceit. Her first husband died without providing for her a child, so she was given another brother. Her second husband also died without providing an heir, and because of that, her father-in-law Judah refused to give her a third son as a husband. And so to try to get a child, she dressed herself up and posed as a woman of the night, lied about who she was, slept with her own father-in-law, and got pregnant. The product of that incestuous relationship was a boy named Perez, who is also mentioned in verse 3, 
who was one of Joseph's ancestors and part of the line of David and Jesus. Rahab was a woman of the night from the city of Jericho who hid the spies when they came to spy out Jericho. And because of that, her family was spared. She eventually became a believer in the God of the Jews and married a man named Salmon and her son Boaz would marry Ruth and become the great-grandfather of King David. Bathsheba is mentioned in Jesus' line, who was a lady who decided to take a bath in the middle of the night and then engaged in an affair with King David. Her first son would die, but her second son would be a man named Solomon, who also appears in the ancestry of Jesus. So here in Matthew's account of the lineage of Jesus, what do we see? We see lies, deception, prostitution, adultery, murder, and idolatry. And these are the stories that we usually leave out of the family tree, right? These are the stories we usually don't tell at family gatherings. Hey, you remember what King David did? We don't, we don't, we don't share those stories at Christmas gatherings, do we? So why does God include them in the narrative of the Messiah? I believe God includes them because He does it to show that the grace of God is powerful enough to overcome any and all sins in our lives. The point of the narrative is that the people in the genealogy are not on display. The grace of God is what is on display. And if God's grace is powerful enough to overcome that sordid history, to bring forth the Savior of the world then the grace of God is powerful enough to conquer whatever sin lies in your past. We need to remember that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I put two takeaways in your notes here. Number one, your past is not so awful that God's power cannot overcome it and use it for His divine purposes. If anything, the genealogy of Jesus shows us with that kind of history, it is that your past is not so terrible that God cannot overcome it by His power and use your past for His purposes. And number two, your past is not so sordid that the grace of God cannot forgive it and change not only your destiny but the future of your family. It's a sordid past that God didn't cover up, but He used people in spite of their sin. He forgave them and used them to be part of His powerful, eternal, sovereign plan. So we see that God's grace is sovereign over all human history, including yours, and God's grace is powerful enough to overcome any failure, including yours, which tells us the third lesson that we see in the genealogy of Jesus, which is God's grace is available to all people, including you. If God's grace is sovereign over all human history, if there are no accidents or coincidences in this world, if there if, if God is powerful enough to take our mistakes and our sins and forgive them and still use us to craft a story of redemption that He is painting, if God's grace can do all of that, then the best news of Christmas is that the grace of God because of the birth of the Lord Jesus is available to all people, including you. The most amazing thing about the grace of God is that regardless of who you are, 
what you have done or where you came from, God's grace is available. The genealogy of Jesus shows us that God's grace is available to those whom many would consider to be outsiders. For instance, Matthew included four women in his genealogy. Scholars have pointed out the fact that women were never included in ancestral records of the Jewish people, only men. If you go back and trace uh, first century, second century ancestral records, you never find the mention of a woman in someone's family line. Only men were recorded. Women were considered insignificant when it came to tracing family heritage. Matthew, however, is showing us in providing for us names like Ruth and, 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 um, and uh, names like um, um, Bathsheba. By putting these women in there, he is showing us that God's grace includes those whom many would overlook or consider to be insignificant or important unimportant. Ruth was a Canaanite. Not only was she a woman, but she was from the historical line that were the mortal enemies of God's people. It's the reason why her entire city was destroyed at the beginning of her story. And yet she and her family were saved. Rahab was a Canaanite. I'm sorry. Rahab was a Canaanite. And she and her family Her city was destroyed, but she was saved because of her faith and kindness to God's servants. Ruth was a Moabite. Moabites were considered unclean because they were the product of incest. They were traced from the line of the daughters of Lot who got pregnant by their father. And in Deuteronomy chapter 23, the Moabites were forbidden to enter into a religious assembly. However, God includes the story of Ruth in his plan of redemption and use her story as an example of redemption. You see, God is for the outsider. God's grace extended to Solomon, who was the child of an adulterous relationship. God's grace extended to Manasseh, who was an evil king who rebuilt the idolatrous worship places that his father had destroyed, even to the point that 2 Kings 21 says that Manasseh led Israel to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord had destroyed before the people of Israel. He was such a wicked king, yet he's included in the story of the birth of the Savior. The reason the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to include these names in the genealogy of Jesus is to show us that Jesus is for the outsider. Jesus is for the sinner. He's for the moral outsider and the social outsider and the ethnic outsider. He's for those whom we would often leave out of the story. And this is the difference between the message of religion and the message of grace. In your notes it says this, religion is the message of being good enough to get to God. That's religion. If we were simply recording a religious story, we would try to tell you how to be good enough to be able to get to God. But grace is the message that God accepts you even though you are never good enough. The story of grace says that while Manasseh was not good enough, he could still be part of the story of God. While Solomon sinned multiple times, he can still be part of the story of God. 
There's a message in the genealogy that says that Jesus has come for the outcast and for those who are not good enough. That Jesus isn't ashamed to identify with others that, that, those with, that others would cast out. J.D. Greer said, The names of Jesus are included in the line that leads to Christ so that you can know that your name can be included in the line that leads from Christ. Christmas is the message of giving. It's the message of gifts. And it's the message of the gift of sovereign grace that makes the ground level at the foot of the cross and declares that wherever you've been, whatever you've done, whoever you are, there's a place for you in the kingdom of God. I hope that this year you will see that in Christmas God has given you in Jesus Christ the gift of His sovereign grace that says no matter how messed up your history is, God can use you. No matter how much you've blown it, God can forgive you. No matter how far you are from God, His grace is available to you. The gift of sovereign grace is that God knows you better than anyone else ever could and loves you more than anyone else ever has. But just like any other Christmas present, the gift of sovereign grace has to be received. It has to be opened. It's not just a nice box that you read and put on the shelf when you're done. It's a truth that you must accept and apply and walk in. So would you today receive the gift of sovereign grace? Would you receive today the, the good news that no matter what you've done, no matter how sorted the knots in your family tree may be, that God's sovereign grace is powerful enough to forgive you of anything you've done and to use you for His purposes. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we finish out this morning? We want to give you an opportunity, if you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ before, in the purpose of this message this morning, during this time, the Lord has, has challenged your heart, began to speak into you to say, you know, if God can forgive people like Rahab, if God can forgive people like David, if God can use someone like Manasseh to be part of this story, and maybe God can do something with me. And maybe today, the Holy Spirit has revealed to you your need for the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, you want to know Him as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've been attending church all your life, but you've never truly surrendered your heart to Christ. We want to give you an opportunity to know the Lord Jesus. We want to give you an opportunity not only to receive the best Christmas gift ever, but to actually open it and apply it. So if you're here today and you need to know the Lord Jesus, then we encourage you to come see me after church and I'll be glad to sit down and talk with you and pray with you and tell you how you can open the gift of Christ this Christmas season. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the gift of sovereign grace. Thank you so much that you're not only a gracious God who loves us and forgives us, but you're a sovereign God who is sovereign over every single moment of human history. And as the scripture says, that when the fullness of time had come, you sent forth your son, born of a virgin, to accomplish your saving plans. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for the gift of your sovereign grace. Father, if anyone's here this morning and they've 
They've never truly trusted in the grace of Christ. I pray that you would reveal that to them. Give them the faith to believe and the courage to respond. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.